Hey Bridgetown family, Tyler here with some very exciting and very important information. As of this moment, Super Early Bird registration is open for this year's Holy Spirit Conference for just $70. You can visit bridgetown.church slash Holy Spirit for more information and to register. We are moving out of our venue in our sanctuary and into a venue right in the heart of our city for this year's Holy Spirit Conference to make room for anyone and everyone who wants to attend as we've sold out quite quickly in years past. So number one, I would say we're so excited to serve the Bridgetown family and those beyond our Bridgetown family who will gather with us for this catalytic event. And number two, I would say get registered early and go ahead and and mark your calendars for January 26 and 27 when we will gather together in the name of the Spirit right in the heart of Portland. Hope to see you there. I'll be reading from Exodus and then again from Matthew. Exodus chapter 11. Now Yahweh had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Yahweh made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by uh, Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what Yahweh says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all your people who follow you, and after that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Yahweh had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. And now Matthew 27, verses 45 to 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. I have the honor of introducing Josh White. His wife Darcy is here as well. Uh, If you don't know the story of Door of Hope, a church not far from here in Southeast Portland, Josh and his family and team planted that probably 2009 before we started Solid Rock Downtown in 2010. So it's been such an important expression of God's kingdom in our city. And I just have, I've known uh, Josh and Darcy, our families have been friends since probably 2010. And uh, I just want to take a moment to pause and honor you, Josh and Darcy. You have 
a unique role in this city. There's an expression that Door of Hope brings to our city and to our nation that's like no other. And out of there, the creativity, the arts, the faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus, the grace of God. Josh, you embody a life message of grace. And your offering not only has been one of faithfulness to our city, but also it's been said that the greatest gift a leader can give the congregation is the gift of their transforming self. And I see in you, Josh, Jesus transforming you season by season in some of the most beautiful ways. You've given our city a faithful expression of Jesus, but also you've given our city as a father and an elder in the city, Josh, you've given us the gift of transforming by God's grace to be more like Jesus before our very eyes. That is something that can't be said about everyone. So I honor that in you. Um, so much more I could say. Josh is one of the most creative human beings known to man. He's a writer and a poet, a musician, producer, most recently, he's a pastor, and most recently a tattoo artist. And also, Josh has written a beautiful offering, uh, a book called Stumbling Towards Eternity. And this is different than most Christian authors. Josh, you've opened up your chest and revealed very vulnerable parts of your own story um, that I think many will find identification with. But even what's more beautiful than that, you take your wounds to the wounds of Christ. And you show through the, the seven last words of Jesus on the cross how our pain and our journey, our humanity intersects with the love of Christ. And it is phenomenal. We have this in our bookstore. This has been one of my summer reads, and I can't recommend it more highly. But more than that, I want to commend to you my good friend. Would you welcome Josh White? I don't know what to say to that. I was, <laughs> was super nice. <laughs> I got a little, I, I got a little, a uh, little misty uh, over there. What's the what's the word of Mike Myers when he gets a little teary and that SNL skit? He's like, talks among yourselves. <laughs> um, uh, Wow, Gerald, thank you so much. Uh, it really is um, a privilege uh, to be here. For those of you who don't know, I actually worked for John Mark uh, for two years um, before starting Door of Hope. Uh, John Mark uh, Comer and I met um, not long after I became a believer. He was actually in this band called Seven Places. Um, you can look them up. He quit the band while they were recording their first album, and I had just signed a record deal with Tooth & Nail and I was painting houses at the time. Darcy was like a brand new believer. Our son was a year old. And the last painting job I did in Seattle was painting the recording studio uh, for Tooth & Nail Records. He's like, I'm gonna sign you, but I also want you to paint my, my building. <laughs> and, while, um, <laughs> and while I was painting that building, seven places were in there recording, and I, I connected with John Mark. And I remember, I just, I just really loved his heart, and he was just so, uh, he was so, he was, 20, I think I was 28, so yeah, he's eight years younger than me, um, or nine years younger. So he was like 20 years old, and he was like, I think I'm gonna quit the band tomorrow. I'm like, 
but you're in the middle of making a record. I don't understand. <laughs> and he's like, I think I'm supposed to go to Portland and start a church with my dad. And he literally quit the band the next day and he was gone. I didn't see him again. And then we reconnected years later um, and I became the worship pastor for, uh, for John Mark at Solid Rock before it became a Jesus church, before it became a West Side <laughs> for it. I, I still tease Phil. I'm like, I don't know. I think Solid Rock, I think we should just bring it back. Yeah. All, every church in Portland should just be Solid Rock. <laughs> so, well, I, 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 I was given the freedom. I was, I, I was specifically, I love it. He's like, today we're going to, Josh is going to talk about Passover. I'm not really talking about the Passover. I, I, I was I told by Tyler that um, to, he's like, I just want you to talk about the cross and I want you to talk about your book. Um, and, you know, I actually felt so uh, anxiety-ridden this morning when I woke up, and, and I think part of it is due to the personal nature of the book uh, and the way that it opens up. I just did a men's retreat where I shared the book, and there was one point where I lost uh, composure for so long that it got awkward, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know, Lord, if I want to go through that again and again, uh, but there's so many, so many things that I want to say, and I just have to remind myself of the one tattoo that I probably should give my, myself and put it on my forehead is the words of Jesus. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. Um, so it, you can you know, raise your hand if, you, if I've said too many things and you're ready for me to be done, I'll, I'll pay attention. I want to um, just begin uh, by reading a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, and when I came to you, brothers, sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling in my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is a powerful passage written by a brilliant man. I have determined to know nothing amongst you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Since I came to faith at 27 years old, I would say that the cross of Christ has continued to be uh, the source of equilibrium for me as a human being. And I'm not a man with a tremendous amount of equilibrium, so whatever equilibrium I have, uh, it, it comes from returning again and again to the foot of the cross, which I believe is the answer that the church desperately needs to rediscover uh, in this post-COVID rebuilding uh, of the kingdom of God in a world that just was shaken to its core. That the cross alone answers the dilemmas of human existence. The cross speaks to the deepest wounds of our lives and reminds us that the, the gospel that transforms our lives is not a ladder in which we climb our way to the heavens, but the gospel is about a God who has come down to earth and met us in our deepest, darkest place, our sin. That Jesus' identification with, with us is not just with our humanity, but it's actually his identification with our brokenness. And it's only when we begin to understand that the gospel is literally good news because it's down to earth. Because it's about a God who says, no matter how deep of a hole that you have dug yourself, my love goes deeper still. 
It is the only way in which we can enter into the brokenness of our own stories because to, to live is to hurt. I like to remind people that life seems to be 100% of the time terminal. Um, and I, some of you are having a hard time believing that, but I promise you it's true. Uh, and if life is terminal and we only have one life to live, the question is, is what are we then living for? And how are we actually making sense of the difficulty and the pain that we inevitably will experience? Because to live and to love is to open ourselves up to the possibility of real pain. I want to open up with a story. Um, it's the story that actually began the process of me writing Stumbling Toward Eternity. Uh, and by the way, the, how this book came into existence was I was going to counseling. And my counselor could not get me to talk about my childhood because I was one of those guys that got saved and I just took that passage, forgetting what lies behind and pressing toward the goal. And I took that as like, that is gospel truth. Never look back. Don't deal with any of it. I came to discover in my 40s in the middle of pastoring a church uh, after 10 years of pastoring and our marriage being pretty rocky and stress of ministry being very intense and some disillusionment setting in, that maybe there were some things in the past that maybe should be addressed. Um, and so I started seeing a counselor. He couldn't get me to talk about my childhood. He said, why don't you try, you love to read, why don't you try writing down some of the stories so that we can kind of unpack them. And so the first story ended up being um, the catalyst for the book. It's entitled, You Didn't Want to Be With Me. A dysfunctional family is any family with more than one person in it. <laughs> Mary. I did not come up with that line. That comes from Mary Carr, uh, one of my favorite literary memoir writers. Such a true statement. <laughs> he watched with unblinking eyes too large for his disheveled head. He was clinging so tightly to his teddy that his hands had turned a whitish blue. He was staring alone in his fear out of a dirty window from the backseat of his father's run-down car, at a volatile scene he did not understand. You could hear his heartbeat almost as loudly as his parents' muffled screams while he watched the scene through tears. His mother was hitting his outraged father like a wild animal. This is my earliest memory. It's vivid, but silent when I play through it in my mind, like an out-of-body experience which makes it all the more unsettling. When I was one, my parents had divorced. On this visit, dad was drunk and had put me in the back of his car. Mom later told me I kept crying, please don't let him take me, mommy. While my father yelled, he's my son too. I can see the scene, but I do not hear it. What is etched upon my mind is two people fighting over me in front of me while I am invisible. And despite the silence of this remembered event, even today I find the emotions of it are still present and impactful. 44 years later, while I was visiting my father in his rundown, filthy cigarette-stained home in rural Alaska, he brought up that incident. Between drags of camel red and sips of vodka, with his greasy hair stuck to his forehead and a highly flammable breathing tube in his nose, Dad spoke to me. The words came in his crackling baritone voice that never seems to have enough air. I'm still angry at you for that, Joshua. Angry at me for what? that you didn't want to be with me. I was two. I'm still angry. As with most conversations with my father these days, this dialogue came suddenly to an end. 
There was a stilted and abrupt quality to his speech as it moved without warning between nostalgia, worry, agitation, and sudden silence. I'm sure this was due to a lifetime of substance abuse and years of isolation. Words were spoken and then abandoned as he retreated back into an interior solitude that matched the loneliness of the Alaskan landscape around him. How could he say that to me? The words pressed down on me with a near otherworldly significance, not because they were true, but because they were honest. He felt rejected, angry, and alone. And he had pushed those feelings down and hid. And now finally he had confessed. He had released his grievance, and we were left with the sadness and absurdity of the words. His statement stood between us as cold and oppressive as the permanent twilight and sub-zero weather outside. But as I sat in the discomfort of that smoke-filled space, an understanding began to slowly wash over my frustration in what I can only describe as a holy intervention. His dad stared out the window at that snow-covered ground, fighting to breathe. I saw him in his brokenness as a child, and there I found compassion, and my lips unlocked, and my tongue loosened. I'm sorry, Dad. It's okay, Joshua. I'm just having a hard time at the moment, son. I know, Dad. I love you. I love you too, son. I'm glad you're here. Your old man is usually tougher than this. I know, Dad. End of conversation. And there was peace mingled in the sadness as we sat there, quietly watching one of Dad's favorite shows, Little House on the Prairie. And there on the screen was Pa Ingalls pleading in a field that God would save his son it seemed like some strange portent, and I silently pleaded the same for my dad. I think this story, A, I'm finding that there is a universal reality to this story and that we all seem to have an Alexander in our lives somewhere. We all know someone like this, someone that feels isolated, someone alone, someone that the brokenness and the disappointments and the discouragements of life have so overtaken them uh, that they have found themselves uh, at the end of life wondering what the point of all of it is. And some of you, like me, have been on the receiving end of having a parent who continued to choose a path of destruction uh, but it doesn't change the fact that they also chose to not live life with you. And as a dad of two incredible kids, I can't imagine choosing a life apart from them. But that's something my dad did. And I'm sure it's something he lived with. And here at the end of his life, my dad actually died a year ago in February. Here at the end of his life, what I discovered was a man who had been reduced to the brokenness of a lonely child. And I was turned into his priest. And I became a conduit. I had an opportunity in that moment to be like, what are you talking about, dude? Why are you angry at me? I'm the one who should be angry. But instead, what Jesus showed me was the upside down kingdom. And it took a moment, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I was pretty haunted by those words when they were first spoken. But when it struck me, what I saw and my father was the frailty of a human heart whom Jesus loved. I saw him as someone that Jesus loved. And it was actually in seeing my father as someone that Jesus loved that I myself began to experience an unbelievable love for him. 
And it was in the offering of an apology to my father for something that I probably didn't need to apologize for, but what I was apologizing for was his feelings. I wasn't discarding them. There was something real, and, and though absurd, there was something profoundly real about what he was saying, and something that I could relate to as well, because I grew up a child, much in the pattern of my father who grew up without much adult supervision. I grew up as a kid without really any supervision, a kid who felt invisible most of his life, a kid who felt unseen. And this is the beauty of what the gospel has to offer us and why the cross must be central. Do you understand what the purpose of the Passover is? I'll just throw it in there for, just so I said it. (laughs) The purpose of the Passover is, it is this unbelievable picture of God leading people out of the house of bondage into the victorious life out of Egypt, that they might be brought in to Canaan. Sadly, it didn't take long for them to be brought out of the house of bondage to find themselves wandering in the wilderness because they kept looking back to the house of bondage. But the cross is the thing that actually keeps us moving toward the promised land. For the promised land is not a picture of heaven. The promised land is a picture of the saving life of Christ now consuming us with a vision of grace that comes only when we come to the foot of the cross. P.T. Forsyth said that no one can understand Christianity unless they understand the cross of Christ. When I look around at the world and I see the loneliness and the brokenness of people, and I see the humanity that has actually been so fragmented that In some places in Portland, the humanity is even hard to find. We have to ask ourselves, what will be the source of us entering into these things, and why should we enter into them? And all I can say is, because Jesus entered into the house of bondage for us and has actually liberated us for the purpose of being conduits of that same liberation in others' lives. There's a beautiful... um, a beautiful kind of parabolic saying uh, by, an, by an old Sufi from probably, uh, it's probably 1,500 years old, Franz Wright, one of my favorite poets, uses it in the beginning of one of his books of poetry called Walking in Martha's Vineyard. And it goes like this. When Moses conversed with God, he asked, Lord, where shall I seek you? And God answered, among the brokenhearted. Moses continued, but Lord, no heart can be more despairing than mine. And God replied, then I am where you are. That is the hope of the gospel. It's not the eradication of our suffering or our pain, but it's the ability to find the pinpoints of grace in the midst of it. It's this beautiful promise I have spoken these things to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full, but in this world you will have tribulation. You're like, which one is it, Jesus? And he's like, yes, that's exactly right. So 
what is it that I want you to draw from the cross today? Because one thing I love, um, and there's a lot that I've learned from John Mark and observing the, the, the practicing the way, and we've had co- good conversations about this. My heart has always been a, a very um, evangelistic, although I wouldn't call myself an evangelist. I'm evangelistic because I think churches should grow through conversions primarily um, rather than transfer. I think that that's a healthy thing. Uh, <laughs> I think that that's a win. Uh, and if we wanna change the title of most unchurched city in the United States, we actually have to see people get saved here in Portland. I don't know, it's like a little bit of common sense. Uh, but, but that tells me that we have to be a gospel-centered community and that the goal of the Christian life actually is witness. Um, our sanctification, um, the transformation into Christ's likeness, all of that is, uh, is something that is meant to turn us into greater and greater conduits of God's grace into the lives of others. That we are the only organization in human history that exists for the good of those outside of our walls. And I think one of the problems that has been revealed through the great shaking that we just went through is that church has been turned into an individualistic private affair. It's about me and Jesus. But the problem is, is that the Christian life is never meant to be private. Personal, yes, it's very personal, but it is not private. And I think that the cross is something that brings us back to the meaning of existence. When we anchor ourselves in the cross, one of the two things that I love about practicing the way that there's a big focus on uh, in the community here at Bridgetown, and there's a lot I can learn. I tend to be so focused on evangelism. Man, I've just been so grateful for conversations around spiritual formation. What does that look like? How does the church do catechism moving forward so that we can actually help people develop into deep, mature believers so that when a shaking comes again, people aren't rattled to the point where they just walk away because they don't know how to actually live as Jesus followers. Um, But there are two focuses that that I think that this church has, has had historically, and that is on the life of Jesus. What did Jesus do? How can I imitate what Jesus did? Uh, and and a, a really beautiful emphasis, and I experienced it this morning, it was just the most powerful prayer time, like, I'm going to send my whole staff over to pray with you guys on Sunday. I'm just going to come over and pray with you every Sunday morning before I go back to church, because it was just so moving. But it's, a, but it's a real dependence upon the Holy Spirit, and I think that's a beautiful thing. But let me just state this, and I want to state it as clearly and as unoffensively as possible. There is no practicing the life of Jesus, and there is no Holy Spirit if you bypass the cross. Because the cross is the door of hope. The cross is the center by which we find our equilibrium. The cross is the means by which the Spirit enters into the life and points us again and again to Christ. Because the purpose of the Holy Spirit, he is a missionary spirit first and foremost. He is to point the world to Jesus. And he does that through us. And so I want to pose three things that I want you guys to take away from this message. And that is, first and foremost, that when the cross is at the center of the Christian life, what we immediately discover is that the goal of life is not arriving, but it is knowing. That the goal of life is not arriving, but knowing. What was that passage that was read out loud from Matthew. Such a beautiful passage, such a mysterious and haunting passage. 
Jesus on the cross of Calvary quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? My God, why have you forsaken me? Do we see Jesus as the forsaken God? That he was forsaken so that we could be what? Found. That he entered into the full isolation of what we have created for ourselves through sin in our rebellion against God's rule and our rejection of his grace. We have been left to our own devices and what we have found has not been any sort of satisfying reality. In fact, right now, do you know that the, that the general surgeon, you know what the general surgeon believes is the chief issue affecting American health today? Do you know what, know what he thinks it is? He wrote a book on it. Loneliness. The general surgeon, he didn't write a book on COVID. He didn't write a book on, on different diseases. He said loneliness is the disease that has the potential to unhinge Americans' health. That isolation and loneliness and self-focus actually has been proven to lead to greater likelihood of cardiovascular diseases, greater, greater likelihood of mental illness, depression, the inability to actually function and contribute into society. And his answer to the dilemma is maybe you should spend time with other people. It's so fascinating to me how genius our modern scientific minds are in simply restating what the Bible said thousands of years ago. But it, it speaks to something that is so profound, and that is Jesus' willingness to enter into the full isolation of human existence, to enter into the hell of the self-absorbed life. For he who knew no sin, we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That he experienced the loneliness that sin creates, the fragmentation, the isolation, the despair, that he entered into it so fully for the very purpose of reestablishing right relationship not only with God but with others as well. There's a statement that is attributed to Augustine, although I didn't find any evidence um, of this exact statement. Uh, I think it's a rephrasing of something Augustine wrote on a commentary in the Gospel of John. Um, but it's one, it's a, it's a sentiment that is extremely popular in the church, and it's one that I believed for many years. It's, it goes like this, he who has God has everything, he who has everything but God has nothing. He who has God has everything. He who has everything but God has nothing. Is that a true statement? Is it? How many of you think that's a true statement? Yeah, quite a few hands. And some of you are like, didn't you already say that you used to believe it? So <laughs> is this a trick question? Um, and then some of you weren't listening to that sentence that I just said, and that's okay. But shame on, no, I'm just joking. Because um, we're about shame in the gospel of Jesus. Uh, <laughs> try harder, do better. <laughs> no, 
here's the problem with that statement. It's actually not true. The second half of the statement is true. The one who has everything without God has nothing. That's true. But the one who has God does not have everything according to God himself. There's a one line from the Westminster Catechism that even good Presbyterians seem to be, it's the only line that anyone knows. Uh, and you know what that line is? The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, I'm pretty sure that's not all the Westminster Catechism says, and I think it has a lot to say about community. But I think our tendency to make everything about us and to make it about this kind of individualistic pursuit of God and my transformation and my personal growth has actually distorted and perverted the gospel. Because let me give you a scripture verse that basically shows clearly and without any question that the one who has God does not have everything if that's all they have. And it comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, you have an overview of the creation story. And it says, at the, it says that at the end that God created man and woman in his image. So male and female together are image bearers of God. They're God-breathed, if you will. And he sees that his creation is very good. And he rests on the seventh day. And it becomes a holy day because God rested from his work, when he says it's very good, it's another way of saying it's exactly what I intended it to be. <laughs> it's what I intended. But Genesis 2, there have been critics that say it's a whole other creation story, but it's not. It's just a zoom in on day six. And that zoom in on day six, there's a mysterious gap between the creation of men and women. And the reason that gap's there is because women can't be trusted. No, I'm just joking. That's not even, I'm just seeing if you're listening to me. <laughs> You're like, whoa, this guy just went too far. Um, I'm getting comfortable now. Uh, <laughs> you made me feel at home. You're going to see my real self. <laughs> no. <laughs> there's a gap. Why is that gap there? It's not because there's a difference between men and women. Man is made from the dirt. Woman comes from the flesh. Now all of us share that same inheritance. We come from flesh. We return to dirt. It's, that's not what makes them unique. What makes them unique is they're both God-breathed. God is breathed into their nostrils. There is the breath of God in them. They are image bearers of God. So why is there a gap between the creation of Adam and Eve? Well, all we can do is speculate. But I think that this is a good speculation because what we have is Adam in this process. He's given immediately a task. He's invited to be a partner with God in actually ruling or or should I say, um, serving the creation. And he's given the task of naming the animals. And it says, and no suitable companion was found for Adam. And God declares something over his very good creation. It's not good. It's not good that man be alone. Wait, but he's not alone, God. He's with you. And if he has you, then he has everything. God says, no. It's not that I don't have everything that a man needs, but I'm saying I have chosen to create them so that they are not complete without others like themselves. 
In other words, when God says over Adam, it's not good that man be alone, I believe that the gap is there not to create some sort of weird distinction between men and women. That is not the purpose of the text. I think the purpose of the text was to make Adam feel his incompleteness because God being made in the image of God means we are made for first and foremost relationship because God is a community within himself father son and holy spirit we are not a community within ourselves unless we have something psychologically broken we are not a community within ourselves we need others to actually be the image bearer that God has intended us to be. And this isn't a passage, it's just about marriage. That's what it's turned into. But the most perfect person who ever lived never got married, Jesus. But Jesus lived life in intimacy with the Father, but he also lived life in intimacy with broken, sinful humans. And he loved them. I think one of my favorite passages, a little passing verse, is when Jesus is talking to the young rich ruler and he gives him all this stuff. He's like, the young rich ruler tells him all the things that, he's, that he does and he's like, great. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. You see, his life, even his baptism, was a baptism into the repentance of Israel. As Israel was being called to a repentance to prepare for the Messiah, Jesus gets baptized into their repentance. Why would Jesus, he didn't have anything to repent of? Because it pleased the Father for the Son to fully identify with the brokenness of the human experience. That God, I mean, what's so mysterious uh, and, and so interconnected is God creating woman and completing the human relationship, the two became one. That partnership also became, on the next page, in the next chapter, the thing that actually destroyed relationship with God and with each other, but also put into motion immediately God's redemptive purposes through, for God speaks to Eve, and what does he say? Listen, your desire is going to be for your husband. Your husband is going to rule over you. It's going to be, there's going to be a war of the sexes. That's going to exist. And he's like, childbearing is going to be difficult. But through your seed, what? Your seed will one day, his heel will be strike, will, will be strike by the serpent, but he will crush his head. God's redemptive purposes is that even through humanity together making a mess of creation actually put into motion God's redemptive purpose to enter into creation in a way that actually changed the unchanging God. The God who changes not actually became creator, became creature. And that is a mystery. In fact, God says over Adam and Eve in a fallen state, he says, he goes, behold, the man has become like one of us. And he doesn't mean this positively. What he is saying is, essentially, our first parents have chosen to be their own gods. They have chosen to define for themselves right and wrong. And they are put out of the garden. You know where that line is repeated? Actually, at the end of the Gospel of John, when Pilate marches Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head in front of the people mocking him as the king, although he actually was the king, 
and he says, behold the man. A complete return to that Genesis account and a reversal of the order. Now what is being said by someone who doesn't even know he's speaking the most true thing he's ever spoken in his life, Pilate is saying, behold the man. This is man as God intended man to be. This is a powerful reality that comes into clarity through the cross of Calvary, that Jesus' death on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that he experiences the complete alienation, the separation of what hell really is. What is hell? I think at its most base level, and I'm not here to give you a big theology of hell or to dive into that doctrine, simply this. Hell is a place where relationship is not. Heaven is a place where relationship is right. And Jesus enters into the hell of our isolation, our doing. He takes it into himself. He makes it his own so that we now can not only have a restored relationship with God, but the restoration of relationship with God cannot be at the negation of right relationship with others. And you see, what I learned with my dad is that here I am leading a church in Portland that's exploding. We're seeing so many people get saved, so many new conversions, and here I am being, as Gerald so kindly called me, a spiritual father, if you will, to so many young people, and yet I hadn't talked to my own father in five years. And so I call him, and I begin to return uh, to that call that I can't say that I have faith for the lost in Portland and refuse to hold on to faith for my dad. I can't say that I have hope for the hopeless when I have zero hope for my dad. That I can't say that I believe that God is going to, going to save lost, hurting people when Jesus is lifted up and refuse to do that for my dad. And that willingness to enter relationally into some kind of healing, some sort of restoration, redemption, and this is the thing, You want to know the best step in evangelism, it begins with this, not treating people like projects, but seeing them as image bearers of God. And though that image may be deeply marred in every arena of their life, they still are people that Jesus died for, that he was forsaken so that they could be found. And is it not possible that someone in our life is not yet found because we haven't been willing to be the conduit by which Jesus finds them? And this is why I entered back into that relationship with my dad. And you know what's fascinating? When I surrendered to the painfulness of reconciling with a man who never apologized for how he raised me, he said that to me. He's like, I'm never going to apologize for how I raised you, Joshua. And I'm like, "Um, you actually didn't raise me. Like, I literally didn't live with you. I saw you like five times my entire childhood. But... Whatever, and he's like, I just remember he got mad at me. He's like, he's like, blah, 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 bleep, bleep, bleep. When I call you, I want to feel better, and then hangs up on me. And I'm like, okay, sorry. <laughs> I don't have to own things that aren't true, but it doesn't mean I get to cut them off. And so this is the thing I always say that forgiveness requires a proximity. If Jesus says, if the first thing that Jesus spoke from the cross was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, that tells us that it's God's heart to forgive and that there's a lot that we do that needs to be forgiven. And when I realize that how often God's grace 
comes to me and brings forgiveness to my life I, when I don't deserve it, which is always, it's not that hard to enter into the life of another. You see, the cross does this beautiful thing of humbling us to the point where we see I, everything that needs to be done has already been done in Jesus. And if I could be anything other than a sinner, which I would argue all a saint is, is a sinner who has yelled mercy. <laughs> Literally. Jesus said of his own disciples, you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. What does that mean? That means in the economy of Jesus, there are only two kinds of people. Evil people that say yes to his yes and evil people that say no. So the saint is a person who still sins. It's called the law of mixture. Why the cross is necessary is because it is understanding that the goal of the Christian life is not arriving. It's not some ladder that we climb. It's not some heroic ascent as you find in the Greek poets and the, and, and the romantics of, of our of ages and all. I love all of them, but that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is the recognition that I, a sinner, have been saved by Jesus and he loves me. On my worst day, he's crazy about me. And if I believe that about myself, how can I withhold that from anyone else? If the goal of the Christian life is knowing, what did Jesus say? This is eternal life, that they may what? Know you, the living God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, when you put the emphasis on arriving, you're moving away from the cross. You're moving away from the cross. It's not about arriving, it's about knowing. The focus of the life is not about sinning less, it's about loving more. First Peter 4, it says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. One thing that the cross teaches us, when you look at the thief on the cross and the very words that he speaks, he says, he, we're told that he was mocking Jesus in one breath, and then what happens afterwards? It's, then he sees something different in how Jesus is responding to the torment, and he says, to the thief on the cross says, listen, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. First, he tells the other thief, he says, listen, we deserve what we're getting. They are in the light of sinless perfection, and all he sees is his own guilt, and he owns it. He says, Jesus, he says, listen, we deserve what we're getting, and then he just turns to Jesus. That's repentance, and then the turn to Jesus, the change of direction, and he cast his hope. We don't even know what he's hoping in. I don't know if he's hoping in resurrection. I don't know if he's hoping in just simply, I just want to be remembered. Uh, but all we know is that whatever, if there's any hope to be had in these final moments of my life, I'm going to cast it with this guy. And Jesus says, assuredly, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's all it took. My father in 2020 actually accepted Jesus. And it wasn't through me. Uh, I think that the beginning seed was planted by my daughter, Hattie, when she gave my father just a reckless love, grace, true grace, the most perfect picture of grace, love without contingency, when she met her grandpa for the first time at five years old, and he showed up at the house, 
and she was waiting on the porch for him and he was walking in his walker and he looked like a more haggard version of Willie Nelson and she runs down and if that's possible, it is. Uh, and she runs down and she says, Grandpa Al, I'm so glad to meet you. My dad swore that the moment she touched him, it was like electricity entered his body. And she walks him to the front porch and he says, little lady, your Grandpa Al has got to have a smoke. And I told her, I said, do not bring up cigarettes with Grandpa Al. She's like, doesn't he know it'll kill him? And I'm like, he does, and he doesn't care. <laughs> and she looked at him, and she looked at me, and she looked back at him, and she looks down at his feet, and she says, Grandpa Al, I love your boots. And that seems so silly, but it was something so much more profound than that. Because in that moment, he was seen and he was loved, and he was humanized by a little girl as she showed him grace. Grace, the one-way love of God. Not a, not a love that Grandpa Al had earned. It was just the nature of this child to love without judgment. It's one of the beautiful things about childlikeness. You see, we put an emphasis as Christians when we lose sight of the cross on sinning less. It becomes about performance. It becomes about, I've got to do better. I've got to try harder. I need to, I need to stop doing this bad thing, and, and I need to start doing this thing. And we want to discipline ourselves toward godliness. And we are told that we are to discipline ourselves toward godliness. But what does that actually mean? And I would simply say that loving more is the means to sinning less. <laughs> it's like, why are we focusing on the negative? Sin has been dealt with once and for all by Jesus. All sin, past, present, and future, if we are in Christ, has been forgiven. Now, here's the thing. Forgiven sin still has the ability to wreak havoc in our lives. So don't think that there isn't cause and effect. This is why Martin Luther said, Jesus saved me from sin. Why didn't he save me from sinning? It's a very clever statement. Um, but he also, that's why he said to Melanchthon, sin boldly, but love the mercy of Jesus more boldly and cling to him. In other words, you're never going to break free from a sinful world, sinful body, sinful mind. It is the law of mixture. Even when I am preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, there is still sin at play. There is still the voice of little Josh, insecure, wondering if people like me, wondering if my pants are too tight, wondering if my hair looks like it's thinning. I mean, all of the silly, in insecure things of the humanity, the sinful part, but I don't give that power. I give the Spirit the power to proclaim the good news of Jesus in spite of all that brokenness. Because loving is what compels me to come and speak to you, not trying harder. Every time I have entered into that game, it is a dead-end road that leads to guilt and shame. And that's not what the gospel's about. Finally, I wanna just close with this, because I've already gone too long. I'll tighten it up on the next one. <laughs> Which, actually, that's the one. It doesn't matter, but it's, uh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> the need of life. It, it, you know what? This isn't my church. I don't care. Um, <laughs> uh, and I know John Mark speak, spoke longer than 47 minutes. Uh, the need of life is not trying hard, harder, but it's surrendering fully. Jesus, the last words from the cross was this, not it is finished, it is finished is beautiful, it's finished but it's not over yet, 
No, the last words of Jesus was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The need of the Christian life is not, I'm going to try harder, but it's, no, I'm going to surrender more fully. This is the work of God, said Jesus, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It is the casting of ourselves in total dependence upon Jesus. It's no longer choosing to define for ourselves what is right and wrong, but allowing Jesus the actual right to be Lord in our lives. And it is only through a total surrender to him do we find the rest that we desire. I want to just share this story in closing as you think about how has the cross been central in your life? And is it leading you into a deeper love of not only God, but of your neighbor? And your neighbor is anyone that's in front of you, beside you, behind you, next to you at any given moment in any given day. Do you recognize that it's not about arriving, it's about knowing? The most important question you can ever ask yourself is, do I know Jesus? For the most terrifying words Jesus ever spoke was, and many will come to me and say, I did all kinds of things for you in your name. And he says, I never knew you. So do you know him? Can you answer yes, I know him. Are you marked by grace, loving more? Because no one's interested in your victory over particular sins if it isn't leading to a greater love. <laughs> no one's interested. They don't care how much you read your Bible. They don't care how much you pray. What people want to know is, do you see me and do I matter? And Christians of all people should communicate, I see you and you matter more than anyone else. It should be at the heart of what we do. But that only comes out of a life that is surrendered. I tried to leave Door of Hope last year. I don't know if you guys knew that because I was taking life into my own hands. My dad had died, I was like, I'm done. I've been doing this too long, I, I need to get out. And then I found this reality. People were like, yeah, yeah, I think you should. You can go do whatever you want. You can go riot, you can go down to California, and I was gonna maybe take over a church down in California. And that the Lord actually spoke something to me um, in November when I came back from my sabbatical. And that was, it's, you ne have you ever thought about asking me what I thought? <laughs> and I'm like, Minor detail. Um, and the Lord's like, I never released you. And then he, was, he asked me a second question. When did you stop believing in the vision that I gave you for a revival in Portland? And I'm like, Lord, I don't know. And I just repented and said, Lord, forgive me. Re restore that vision for an awakening in our city. I've lost hope. I've lost hope. And then he showed me something else, that every time I've tried to leave Portland, I've been like Jonah, and he just keeps vomiting me back up on the shore here <laughs> over and over again. And I realize I can end my story like Jonah where God accomplishes what he wants to accomplish, but I'm bitter about it. Or I can surrender to the joy of being a conduit of grace by my willingness to go wherever Jesus leads me. We talk about thin spaces in Christian lives. You know where the thin space is? It's not Tahoe where I just was, although it's beautiful. And it is quiet. But the thin space is wherever Jesus is. And if Jesus is the one leading, I promise you he will lead you into the most uncomfortable spaces because his heart is for the broken and the hurting. And they're all around us in the city. This is a wonderful city. It's a prime, it's, it's, this is the prime real estate for a revival.
Portland, Oregon is. We get, we, my wife said, stop talking about how bad this city is. We get it. Start telling people that they're loved and speak to the heart and remind us that these people around us are people made in the image of God who need to know that Jesus loves them. I stood over my dad last year. I got a call on Wednesday night that he was dying and that they were gonna put him on comfort care. I said, how long do I have? They said, we don't know. He could go in within a couple hours, he could go within a day. And I said, okay, I'll get there as fast as I can. I got the phone, I was on a plane to Anchorage and I was, I was literally by my dad's side at 7 a.m. in Soldotna, Alaska. And there he was, more um, cleaner than I'd ever seen him. <laughs> Prepared for something beautiful, almost. I saw there that this was a picture. The, the ICU of, of that hospital functioned more like a church than most churches I've been in because they never rejected my dad. They loved him, they cleaned him, they cared for him. They nursed him back to health no matter how many times he came through those doors at death's door. They cared for him. And I remember a nurse coming in and looking at my dad as he was passing away. And she says, I'm going to miss you, old timer. I guess I'm never going to get that date you promised. And I was like, <laughs> I think you could be his granddaughter. And I'm just not going to overthink that. But my dad had some weird secret charm thing that even to the end. And I'm like, but... There was something they cared about him. And I'll never forget, I went, in to, I went to the side of my dad, the, the, the nurse said, looks like he's close, and he was beginning that, that final where his breathing was, there was long spaces between breaths, that's what they call the death rattle, and it's just a horrible sound. And, uh, and he would take a breath, and I'm like, did he die? And he's like, and then he'd let this exhale out. Life does not surrender itself easily, I discovered. And I put a song on that I had written the week before called Home, and I put it on my phone, and I, and I stood by his ear, and my dad opened his eyes, and he looked straight into my face as he heard my voice and began to weep uncontrollably, and he couldn't speak. And I stood over his face, and I put my hands on his cheeks, and I just said, Dad, I love you. And it was so hard to watch him because he couldn't breathe. He was dying of COPD. He couldn't breathe. He was, he was suffocating. It's terrible. It's a terrible thing to see. And I wanted to look away. But I felt the Lord say, no, like, you're here for this moment. And I looked into his eyes steadfastly and I just kept telling him it was okay and that it was time to go. My dad had come to faith, actually through the hospital chaplain, which is so beautiful, led him to Jesus. He asked if he could call him the big fella, <laughs> so cute. <laughs> I said, as long as you started with Jesus. And there I am looking at my dad's face and he can't breathe and I, and, and I just tell him it's okay. And 30 seconds before the song is over, he takes his last breath. And I just remember sitting there, consumed with this overwhelming sense as I watched my dad's face, as he saw my face and my unwillingness to look away from his suffering, peace came over him. And I heard these words, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. 
And I believe what my dad experienced in those last moments was not his son looking at his face, but I think he saw Jesus in me, inviting him home. This is what the cross brings. This is what the cross is all about. This is why we must surrender to the centrality of this incredible God who has entered into our suffering and made it his own so that we can be free to be conduits of his love, not escape the suffering, but enter into it fully as vehicles of his love.